0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us safely together again this afternoon. And we thank you for the blessings we've received in the fellowship with one another and the studies we've had in other seminars and the messages we have heard, the spiritual feast that we have truly been enjoying. And we thank you for your presence in this place. Once more, we ask that you will be with us to guide us into all truth into, and to help us with some of the more practical aspects, such as dealing with money and debt today. So teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So for, in case some of you are joining us for the first time, we are doing a seminar on personal finance. And the first three sessions of this week, today being the third out of the six, uh, we'll, we're dealing with some of the more practical aspects of money, the more day-to-day aspects, starting tomorrow. So starting tomorrow for the last three sessions, we'll be shifting gears a slight bit and we'll be looking at uh, prophecy. And looking at our financial, personal financial situation and and personal finance in light of our apocalyptic understanding of what is coming in the world. And so the end time finance portion is going to come. However, I will say for those of you who have been faithfully attending, the principles that we have been addressing in the previous few days Come to bear nevertheless within the context of the end time prophecy. So, I don't want to make it sound like we're going to just throw everything out, right? That's not how it works. God's principles are timeless and we can apply them throughout uh, whatever circumstances we may uh, find ourselves in. And so, I just want to mention that. And today, we are looking in particular on the topic of debt. And the title you see there is Slaves with Smallpox, Practical dips, uh, Tips on Dealing with Debt. And uh, savingthecrumbs.com, I've mentioned it before. It's the website where my wife and I have written about this. And also audioverse.org is the website where I am the director, but I also have some previous uh, financial seminars available on there. And if you looked previously on your, in your program, you will see that the subtitle for this session was supposed to also include a discussion on budgeting. And in the course of preparing, I realized I'm not going to be able to do it justice to do both topics in one, and so I cut out the budgeting part. I'm sorry, I know, that must really disappoint you. Uh, But on Audioverse, I have a message entitled Counting the Cost. It's from a GYC convention some years ago, Counting the Cost. And that is one entire hour-long session going through how to do a budget. And uh, I'll just tell you now, the way I approach budgets, it's not handcuffs telling us what we can't do, but it's a plan to help us accomplish what we want to do, all right? That's really a mental shift in budgeting, and it's not about what we can't buy, it's about what we can save to what we can achieve. And so counting the cost, you can look that up, and I have the slides available on there as well. You can see the tables and, and the process of how I recommend budgeting. But today... Our topic is debt. And I want to hearken back to our first day together where we had our quiz. And one of our quiz questions was this question. Is being in debt a sin? Okay, so let's pick it back up right here, our discussion on debt. Is it a sin to be in debt? Publishing Ministry, page 209. This is what Sister White writes. I now write to ask you if you will let me have the use of $2,000 to help me in bringing out books that the people need. If I should fall in the conflict before the Lord's appearing, my sons would carry forward the work of circulating my books according to my plans. When the expense of issuing my books is lessened, the sales will soon pay up all my debts. We looked at this in our first session, but to just recap Sister White is not our example, Jesus is our example. But nevertheless, I find it difficult to believe that Sister White would so almost nonchalantly ask to borrow money if being in debt was on the level of moral crimes as a sin. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that way. And uh, we're going to come back to this statement to try to glean out some of the principles of, of why this was acceptable. But that's one side. So it's not sin necessarily to be in debt. However, the Bible and elsewhere in the spirit of prophecy, there are some other statements. It says the borrower is servant or better translated as slave to the lender. This is Proverbs 22, 7. And I think this stands to reason. If we owe uh, money to someone, then we are attached to them. We are obligated to them. We really have not the freedom to do whatever we want. They have a claim on us. And so Adventist Home also says this, 393, page 393, be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life getting into debt. Avoid it as you would the smallpox. And uh, I like to tell the joke that it's COVID-19 and nowadays. Avoid it like you would COVID-19. So is it a sin to be a slave? No, Joseph was a slave. The children of Israel were slaves for hundreds of years. It's not a sin to be a slave, but should we aspire to be a slave? (laughs) No. And in the same vein, is it sinful to have smallpox or COVID or to be sick? Clearly not. And so what are we seeing here? On one hand, yes, sin may not be on the moral level of a crime like breaking one of the Ten Commandments. But on the other hand, it's analogous to having a terrible disease or being in the condition of of slavery. You don't want either of those things, right? So the summary really is, debt is bad, but not a sin. It is something like sickness. You want to avoid it. It's something like the condition of being a slave. You want to avoid it, right? And that's also where we derive the title of our message this afternoon, Slaves with Smallpox. Interestingly enough, we, the American public, really are a nation of slaves with smallpox. Here are a few stats for you. The average household debt in 2020 was uh, $149,230. The average car loan is $28,000. Average student loan balance, so it might be more than one loan, $58,468. Average credit card balance, $6,700. And credit card interest per year on average is $1,155. It has been said that debt is as American as, as apple pie. And uh, I guess it kind of is true. Now, looking at this, I I looked up these numbers a few years ago. And back then, the average credit card balance was significantly higher. And everything else has gone up. And I'm like, why did credit card debt go down? And I looked it up. And apparently, the stimulus money that came through the COVID relief bills was good for something. Because people actually did pay down their credit card balance. So there, was some, there is some sliver of good news in these numbers because otherwise the credit card balances were uh, significantly higher in previous years. But nevertheless, we are looking at significant debt load on the American uh, household and the American population. Forbes magazine tells us these statistics. 63% of Americans don't have cash to cover a $500 emergency. Nearly two-thirds of Americans cannot pay $500 if that were to happen. 56.3% have less than $1,000 in their checking and savings accounts combined. That's more than half. And so this tells us that the majority of Americans are one paycheck away from catastrophe. Living paycheck to paycheck, we've heard that saying. It actually is a real thing, and it affects not just the Lower class, the poorer classes. It actually affects all, people all the way up the income levels. Um, I know for a fact. My, I have family members that work as medical professionals in the hospitals. And last year, you remember, a lot of hospitals were going through difficult times. Nurses and medical professionals were furloughed, uh, sometimes without pay. And there were very what you would consider middle class or even moderately wealthy and affluent people who were in panic mode because they did not know how they were going to survive without this you know, constant drip line of, uh, of income coming in every two weeks. And so this is not just talking about the poor. This affects people even with higher levels of income. So the question today is, so when is it okay to have debt? So we live in a world in which debt is very commonplace. Is it ever appropriate? Is it ever acceptable to have debt? So let's answer this question by looking back at the statement from Ellen White in Publishing Ministry. So page 209, it says this, and notice the different highlighted portions. I now write to ask you if you will let me have the use of $2,000. What was Ellen White borrowing the money for? To help me in bringing out books that the people need. All right. If I should fall in the conflict before the Lord's appearing, my sons would carry forward the work of circulating my books according to my plans. When the expense of issuing my books is lessened, the sales will soon pay up all my debts. So what kind of loan was Sister White looking for? Was it a living loan? Was it a credit card? Was it just a line of credit for me to just pave my grocery bill with? It was for a very specific purpose. She was borrowing money to print books that would then be sold at a profit. You see what she's doing here? What she's borrowing money for actually will have a return. Okay? So the rules for acceptable debt are two, and they're basically two sides of the same coin. Number one, never borrow money for something that only goes down in value. That is, in other words, what we call a depreciating asset right? There's appreciating and then there's depreciating. So if you're buying something that only goes down in value, that is not something you should be paying with interest, right? Buying on interest. Number two is the flip side is that borrowing is acceptable only if what you're buying can pay off the debt, right? Whether through the appreciation of what you're buying or if it's income generating, uh, then that is what the world would deem quote unquote good debt. Have you ever heard this term? People say that's good debt versus bad debt. Now, having said what we've said and seen what is said in the Bible about, you know, the borrower slave to the lender and smallpox and all of that is difficult for me to call any debt good debt. I like to just refer to it as acceptable debt. It's okay sometimes. And so Ellen White's royalties and the net profit from her books would pay back the debt that she took out. So, applying these two rules, was she borrowing money for something that only goes down in value? No. Nope. And is she borrowing money for something that can pay back the debt eventually? Yes, she can. Uh, yes, she does. She was doing that. And so, let's take a look at some examples here. Do they pass these two debt rules? Student loans. Is that a yes or a no? Does it pass? A student loan, the idea behind the student loan is that you are take borrowing money to increase your earning potential in the future. That's the idea. But is yes with conditions, you understand. Not any student loan and not just any amount of student loan would be reasonable because, you know, the proverbial underwater basket weaving degree if you pay $100,000 for a prestigious you know, university to get that degree, it is unlikely to be a good return on your investment. You understand what I'm saying? But if you're an engineer or you're a doctor or dentist or nurse, you nurse, know, some of those things, you can do the math to see if I'm going to pay this amount and this is the starting earning wage and this is how much I can earn, uh, it can pay back the loan and you are improving yourself. All right, so the next one. What about a home mortgage? Does it pass the debt rules? Yes or no? Yes, and again, it's within certain conditions, right? Just because you can doesn't mean you must. So we'll talk about buying a house in a little bit. What about a new iPhone? Yeah, I'm glad. (laughs) I'm glad you guys were clear on that one because the value of your iPhone will only go down in value. What about a car loan? So here's here, and I knew someone was going to say that. So in the most traditional use case, right, like I'm just buying a car for my personal use to commute back and forth from work or for school or whatever, it's a depreciating asset. A car, we proverbially, like we know it. The moment you drive it off the lot, it goes down in value. And of course, you know, the joke is, oh, my car is a classic. No, your Toyota Corolla is not a classic, right? But the car alone might be appropriate if let's say you were in business right and you have a vehicle that actually generates income so there is obviously some some leeway in there but for most people for personal use is what i'm referring to a car loan is doesn't pass it doesn't pass the rules because a car is a depreciating asset and it doesn't pay back the loan there is a question that's a good point we're actually going to talk about that in just a moment so Uh, we are living in a fairly unique situation with the price of used cars. So uh, hold on to that point. Uh, We are going to talk about how to buy a car in just a moment. So the point here is just because some debt is permissible, it doesn't mean that you must borrow the money, right? Because it's still smallpox and it is still subjecting ourselves to a condition of slavery. So let's talk about some of these types of loans more specifically. So let's talk about the student loan first. So when we look at a student loan, there are some fine print that we need to remember. The first point is that federal student loans, I'm not talking about private student loans right now, federal student loans cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. So there's there's only two ways that you get out of your student loan from the federal government. Number one is you pay it off, and number two, you know what it is? You die. And I think I know which of the two I prefer. (laughs) So federal student loans cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. And Uncle Sam is so kind. He will even save you the step of sending them the money. He'll garnish your tax returns and sometimes your income if necessary to return the money to uh, his coffers. And so just because you qualify for student loans, don't take the max amount. This is I, th- I, I would wish that this was common sense advice, but unfortunately, it's not. I have heard on more than one occasion, people nonchalantly say, I took the max amount. I mean, they're, they're boasting, right? They're actually bragging about it. They took the max amount of student federal loans, and, and they're like, oh, wow, look how much money I have. And oh, and then I took out a living loan, and I begin to sort of melt in my seat when I start hearing that, like, no, you don't know what you're doing with your life, because guess what? It ain't free money. And did you know that Sister White actually has something to say about student loans? Let's take a look. In the book Education, page 221, in acquiring an education, many students would gain a most valuable training if they would become self-sustaining instead of incurring debts or depending on the self-denial of their parents. Let young men and young women depend on themselves. They will thus learn the value of money, the value of time, strength, and opportunities, and will be under far less temptation to indulge idle and spendthrift habits. The lessons of economy, industry, self-denial, practical business management, and steadfastness of purpose, thus mastered, would prove a most important part of their equipment for the battle of life. So Sister White doesn't just say, hey, don't just count on student loans to get your way through school. Learn to depend on yourself and learn how to work. And in fact, she says, what you learn from working may actually be more valuable than the education you get from the books in your degree. And just to tell you my story, uh, I mentioned on the first day that I was able to make, uh, get my master's degree from Southern uh, without any debt. So the story starts the summer before my wife and I got married. This was back in 2010. And, and you remember 2010 was the GC session in Atlanta. And my wife, she was my fiancé at the time. We were going to get married in the fall, but I had enrolled. I was going to do a master's program at Southern. And we were driving to Atlanta. And on the way, we were going to stop at Southern, turn in my paperwork and my application, those kinds of things. And so we were driving down I-75, we arrive on campus, I came into the business office of the business school, and I was talking with the advisor, and then a voice shouts from across the room, hey you, over there! I turn around and there's an elderly gentleman comes bounding across the room, big smile on his face, and he says, were you driving in a white Honda Accord going southbound on I-75 yesterday around 3 o'clock in the afternoon? And I thought, are you an angel? (laughs) Like, who are you? How do you know that? Because yes. And he said, ah, my wife and I, we were driving on the freeway and we looked over and we looked at the two of you and we said, those young people look like Adventists and I bet they're going to the GC session in Atlanta. That's what he said. And then he looked at our license plate and we had a little frame around the license plate and it had the word Loma Linda on it because that's where I'm from. And he said, ah, for sure they're Adventists then, because they're from Loma Linda. And then he says, and here you are in my office the very next day. What a coincidence. And my wife and I looked at each other like, I don't, this doesn't feel like a coincidence. Feels like something more than that. Fast forward, we get married in the fall. I start my graduate program in January in the dead of winter. We had moved to the Collegedale area with the intent of working. I was planning on working while going through school. I had applied in multiple places, nothing. And we had a kind friend letting us stay in their basement apartment uh, until we figured out, like, what can we afford? We don't want to just rent any old place if we can't afford it. And, you know, the, the thought starts creeping in my mind, maybe we will need to take out loans for this. My wife was looking for work as well. And so school had started. I was a week in. Nothing was opening up. And I was sitting there doing accounting homework. Nothing worse than doing accounting homework while wondering where we are going to find money to pay for this degree. And so I was there and I get an email from guess who? The gentleman that I saw in that office that day, six months or so earlier. And you know who he was? He was the dean of the school of business. His email was one line, have you found a job? I responded to him so fast, there was smoke coming out of my keyboards. And he said, okay, come see me in my office right now. So I said, great, what an excuse not to do my homework. The dean needs to see me. So I drove over back to campus, and long story short, there was a brand new graduate uh, graduate assistantship opening up, working for him, specifically under him, and I was the first person that came to mind. Why do you think I was the first person that came to mind? Hmm, perhaps there was a divine appointment some months before in the summer on I-75, headed south toward Atlanta. The angels of God were putting a thought in this man's mind. And so yesterday at the conclusion of our talk, I mentioned we might be struggling, but bring our loaves and fishes to Jesus. Well, that's what I did. I said, Lord Jesus, I am willing to work. I'm willing to be a greeter at Walmart. I'm willing to scrub toilets. I don't want to go into debt. I'm willing to do what it takes. And so he opened the opportunity (laughs) There were some costs involved. I wasn't able to just go full-time. I had to extend my program a little bit. And uh, this may not always be feasible in all circumstances, but within my context, instead of taking one year, it took me two years. I didn't have any vacation, all of the breaks, I was working. And I had to work, you know, on the shoulders even of the summer and winter breaks. And I had to spend a lot of time on campus when I could have been home with my wife. And there are these types of things that... When I look at the situation, I say, praise the Lord. I was willing to give him the meager uh, loaves and fishes that I had, and he returned to me a graduate education with no debt. And my story is certainly going to be unique. Your story is probably going to be unique. But the point of the matter is, if we take God at his word, there are important equipment that God can give us if we choose to rely on ourselves. So hope that was a little inspirational for some of the young people out there or maybe parents and grandparents, you can pass that on for the, the young people. You don't always have to go for the student loan first, right? That doesn't have to be the first option. All right, let's talk about buying a car now, okay? Buying a car without a loan. You guys are a very kind audience because I have had audiences where I say it is not appropriate or we shouldn't borrow money to buy a car and I feel like they're about to stone me. So maybe you guys feel that inside and you're just holding it in. I appreciate that. But let's talk about this. All right. So average, the average car payment in the United States is about $500 for 68 months. Okay. So if you add that up, total payments are roughly $34,000 total. And that, that roughly makes sense, right? Most of the, you know, cars on the road, the general price range, right? The average is probably about 30000 34000 Maybe a little less, you know, once you include interest. But here is the secret to buying a car without a loan. Okay, you ready for it? And that is if you can afford the car payment after you make the purchase, you can afford the payment before you buy the car. Have you ever considered that? When people go into the dealership and they sign on the pay- dotted line, And now they're like, oh, I've got a $500 payment every month. Somehow the money magically appears. Where was the money just a month before? Something, does something change in our life when we sign the dotted line? Something changes is because now we have a master, right? No man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, we've got the lender basically with the, the chain around us. Uh, The ball and chain saying you got to make your payments. So that's that's really all there is to it, right? Pay yourself your car payment and then go to the dealership. So let's break this down. So buying a car, step number one, be willing, and this might be the hardest step of all, be willing to drive a cheap temporary car. And that's the key word, temporary. It's not forever. Be willing to drive a cheap temporary car for a while Number two, while you pay yourself the car payment. That's just a fancy way of saying save up, right? And then use the amount that you have saved plus the equity in your car to upgrade to a nicer car in cash and then you just rinse and repeat. And just like our our brother said right in the front here, used cars are going for a pretty penny these days, right? So this can actually... Your your car may actually be worth more in a twist of events uh, than than normally uh, it would be. So let's put some numbers to this, all right? Number one, let's say we buy a $2,000 temporary car, all right? And we start with that, and then we save the $500 per month, the average payment, you fill in the blank, whatever the payment is for you for 12 months. So now you've saved us $6,000 plus you have the equity in your car. You sell that temporary car, which, by the way, when a car is only worth $2,000, there is unlikely to be much of any depreciation, even if you put on another 10,000, 15,000 miles over the 12 months. And you buy a $7,000 or $8,000 car. And then you save again $500 a month for another 12 months. Now you have $6,000. At the end of two years, now you can upgrade, sell the other car, right, with the $6,000, you add it together, roughly $12,000, $14,000. And you've upgraded in just 24 months from a $2,000 car to a roughly $12,000 to $14,000 car. You do that another time, and you're up to almost 20 dollars And you can imagine, you can just continue doing this, and you're continuously getting a nicer car each year without ever going into debt. Or the other way to do it, you just buy your $2,000 temporary car, you drive it for 68 months while you save up to the $500,000, And then if you take your $34,000, you have enough cash then to buy an entire fleet of vehicles. Not that I would recommend you do that, but that's just to make a point. If you've driven a $2,000 car for five years, you're probably going to be fine driving another used car because your tastes have changed, right? But if you do want to go out and buy a brand new, you know, $30,000 car or whatever, you have the cash to do it then. You never borrowed money for it. And so buying a car is like buying a depreciating asset, or it is a depreciating asset. Purchase it as you would a tool that would never increase in value. So I, w- I never recommend people to borrow money to buy a car. All right, so what about if we already have debt? How do we pay it off? So a couple points here. We need to own the debt. Don't make excuses and don't play the victim. Because that just slows us down. If we're just busy, you know, pointing fingers and making excuses, we're not making progress on getting out of debt. And there is no alternative to making big payments. Sometimes you might be able to negotiate. You might get, you know, less than a dollar, right, per dollar that you owe that you have to pay back, but it, it rarely eliminates the debt. That's debt forgiveness, and that's a rare thing. Now, make debt pay off the number one priority in your short-term savings plan and then squeeze every dime out of your monthly spending plan or your budget to go towards your debt And don't worry about other investments until your debt is paid off. This is a common misconception. People often ask me, I have debt. Can you recommend an investment that I put my money in that can, you know, explode in value that then can help me bury my debt quicker? That's a very dangerous way of thinking because it doesn't take into account risk, right? Because if you're looking for a high rate of return in your investments, it always comes with risk and the cost or rather the, the investment actually go down in value over time and then you're up a creek without a paddle. You've got your debt over here and you've got your investments that have lost value over here. Now there is one mild exception and that is if you have a home mortgage with a fixed rate low interest rate, then sometimes it is appropriate to invest in other things even while you have a home mortgage, especially right now with interest rates as low as they are. And so Uh, The last point here, we want to use the debt snowball method to pay off your debt. So what is the debt snowball? Okay, let's take a look at it. When we take uh, a debt snowball is we list our debts from smallest to largest by balance. Okay, the smallest amount owed to the largest amount owed. And we make minimum payments on all of the debts except the smallest one. And we have focused intense effort on the smallest debt and we pay that off first. And then you roll all of the extra into the next smallest one and you attack them one at a time. And so let me give you an example of a debt snowball. So this person has two credit cards, a car loan, and a student loan. So $38,500 total. And if they have $1,000 a month to apply towards the debt, you notice immediately one month, in month one, they will have paid off credit card one. And in four months, both credit cards would be done. So it would feel, even though on a, you know, when you sum up the total of the dollars owed, it's not halfway, but the way that it's listed in your list, it feels like you've made half, you're halfway there, right? You've been able to scratch two things off. After one month, bam, I'm 25% done, it feels like. And then four months later, bam, it feels like I'm halfway done. And this, it, you might be thinking, well, that's just a mental game. It is. And this is called behavioral finance. And there have been research done that there are certain. Uh, idiosyncrasies with human instinct and human emotions that prevent us from making the most rational decisions. And so, yes, there are other methods, we'll talk about one in a minute, that you might save more money on an absolute level. But to maintain the momentum and the, the energy of being able to pay off everything, this method tends to work the best. And so a payoff in about 39 months or three and a quarter years using the debt snowball. So people frequently ask, okay, well, why don't you pay off the highest interest rate debt first? Because if you do the math, you will will save the most money doing that way. But it's really the psychological motivation of seeing the small wins adding up. It maintains that wind in your sails. You feel like you're making progress as opposed to being stuck on this massive debt and you're just making payments and making payments for months or years at a time, and you've still got these three other debts hanging over there, you just feel like you're not getting anywhere. And it's easy to give up. But in either, in either case, it's better to pick one or the other rather than just going and not paying it off at all, right? So that is ultimately the point. And I, I always like to tell people this, paying off your debt is the best investment. If you regret being debt-free, it's easy to undo it. You can always go back into debt. Not so easy getting out of debt. Easy to get back in. And there's one other point I forgot to mention about investments versus paying off your debt. So let's say you have a credit card with 25% interest rate. How much do you have to earn on your investments over here in order to just break even with what you're being charged with interest over here? 25%, right? That's how the math works out. So if you have an investment over here that's earning 25% and you have a credit card that is charging interest 25%, you're just breaking even, right? And so if you are able to pay off that credit card at 25% interest, you have just earned a 25% rate of return on your investment. So in that sense, paying off your debt really is one of the best investments and it is risk-free. It reduces your risk uh, when you do that. And so speaking of credit cards, let's talk about that next. Talking about debt, we have to talk about credit cards. And uh, with apologies to Dave Ramsey, I know you know who he is, and he has very, you know, strong views on credit cards. This is one area where I diverge from his teachings. Credit cards, I I don't believe credit cards are dangerous. They're just pieces of plastic or just numbers, digital numbers in your account. But credit card use without self-control is dangerous. Just like everything else in personal finance, it's not the financial side that's the problem. It's the personal side that's the problem. But having said that, I do admit it is possible to live without credit cards. You don't have to have credit cards. Because I've heard people on the other extreme say that too. Like, oh, you've got to have credit cards. No, you can live without them. Uh, but also, I do have to admit that credit cards have benefits. Benefits. So there's cash back, there's points and rebates and things of this nature, and also there's purchase guarantees and extended warranties, rental car insurance, travel perks, a lot of those types of things. So proper credit card usage, there's really two main points that we need to remember when it comes to using credit cards appropriately. Number one, and this is, goes without saying, I, I hope, but don't use credit cards to buy stuff you don't need. Right? That's where the budget comes in. And never carry a balance month to month, pay off your card every month. And if you cannot abide by these two guidelines on credit card usage, then you should cut them up. Because earlier we said credit card without self-control, right, is the problem. How do you know if you have self-control or not? Well, these are the two rules. If you're buying stuff you don't need, and or you're not paying off your card month after month, that is clear objective evidence that you don't have the self-control. So in that case, cut up the cards, the plastic surgery, or as they call it, go off, uh, you know, take, it, take the auto charge, right, on all of your subscriptions and whatever online, take off your credit cards and stick with using a debit card or with cash. However, the flip side, if you do use credit cards, You should use your credit cards, let me put it this way, you should charge as much as humanly possible on your credit cards. You might find that strange to hear, but it's because of the financial reasons behind how commerce is conducted today. So you see on there, there are also rewards as well, so so we're earning rewards. And uh, I, I, I know that sometimes even guys like Dave Ramsey, they, they, they get on their little hobby horse and they, they make the statement that you pay less or, or rather the merchants charge you less if you pay with cash. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes. Not generally the case anymore. Everybody shops on Amazon, right? Walmart, Target, Best Buy, all of the big merchants, the dirty little secret is that the credit card transaction costs are baked in already to the prices that they list. So everybody pays them because they already know that the cost of doing business, of allowing to Visa, MasterCard, and American Express, and Discover to to be able to accept them, that's just the cost of doing business. And so to insist on not using credit cards, you're actually leaving money on the table. And so there are only two gears, if you will, to use the car analogy again when it comes to credit cards. You either don't use them at all, like zero, or you put everything possible on the card, right? Because when you put everything else on the card, as long as you have the self-control to pay it off every month, and you're only buying stuff that you need, right? Then you are getting the rebate back that would have gone to other customers or would have just gone to the credit card company. So whether it's in cash back, 2% cash back, or travel points, or hotel points, or reward rebates, whatever you, you have it, you are not leaving that money on the table in that case. And so the final point here about those rewards Sometimes we get a little trigger happy and we see all the bonus rewards, right? The, the letters in the mail like, oh, I get a bonus 500 points or 2,000 points if I just spend this much then the first three months. And then it's possible some of us might have done this. I know I'm guilty of this in the past where I end up having a bunch of credit cards with these very small amounts of rewards like scattered throughout. And it's not even enough to redeem. And it becomes very difficult sometimes to even, even juggle them, right? Like, which card do I use for this? Like, which one has the 3% off? That's very complicated. So consolidate your points into the few cards that make the most sense for you. Whether it's travel or a gas card or maybe it's just a cashback card, right? That's going to be up to you. But I recommend consolidating the use of your cards to just one or a few cards and then use it to death and pay it off every month, okay? I know this, might, this part might sound kind of off-brand when I talk about debt, but is it clear what I'm saying? Does that make sense what I'm trying to communicate here? Credit card, I'm not saying to use credit cards to borrow money, but to use them wisely to actually get back the points that were already being charged. Okay, let's talk about housing now. Let's tell, uh, let me tell you the story about our house. I showed you this picture yesterday. This is the home my wife and I bought back in 2013, and we paid it off in two years. So we are going to be very transparent, and I'm going to give you my exact numbers. So we paid $185,000. That was the purchase price of our home, and it's a three-bed, two-bath home, 1,400 square feet. We have a little guest house in the back that's another 800 square feet or so. It's on one acre of land uh, near Collegeville, Tennessee. I'm not going to give you my social security number. Uh, Don't worry. And our mortgage was $85,000. We got a 15-year fixed rate mortgage at 3.49% interest. You know, when I first put this presentation together, this, this interest rate was quite impressive. But recently, if you look at the interest rates, this is like way more than what you can get nowadays. So interest rates have gone down quite a bit. And so our monthly minimum payments were $607.24, but our actual payments that we made averaged $3,700, and we had a $100,000 down payment. And so everybody always asks, What's the secret? What's the secret? How did you pay off your house in two years? Well, those bottom two lines, that's the secret. I'm sorry to break it to you. There was no magic pill or magic secret financial, you know, sophisticated trick to do this. We just paid a lot of money in our down payment, in our actual payments. So you must be wondering, how did you do that? So the big down payment is all my wife's fault. And I say that with uh, tongue in cheek, obviously. My wife had a dream since she was young to buy her first house in cash. And so since whenever she got a nursing degree and uh, ever since she got her first job, she's been saving up like a crazy woman. And uh, that's why I married her, right? Best financial decision I ever, I ever made. <clears throat> and so after we put the down payment, so the 100000 right, she'd been saving for years before that, we were both working at the time because we did not have a baby yet. And we did the math and we realized, okay, we're both working. It is conceivable for us to pay this house off within this very very short time frame. And so we made the decision that we can knock this out and then start the family. And that would help us with our budgeting and cash flow on the other end because we wouldn't have monthly payments on the house, which is typically for most people the largest monthly expense. And so we took half of our salary, one entire salary of our two working people and put it towards the house and actually a little bit more than that. And so nearly all of our savings went towards the mortgage and we averaged six times the minimum. So that's how we did it. And it's all about the savings rate, right? Saving the crumbs, that's what we're about. Gather up the fragments, we talked about it yesterday. And so the benefits is that we get to live rent and mortgage free, eliminating the single largest expense in our budget. And so this was really the big reason why my wife was able to stay home after we had our baby while I was working in a ministry job. Our salary took a massive hit But our expenses also was significantly reduced because we didn't have a house payment anymore. Okay, so that was our trade-off there. And we also own our home now instead of the bank, and so there's no risk of foreclosure. And it opened up our free cash flow for other savings. So we also were able to invest in solar panels. We put solar panels on our house, and since that time, we have not paid a dime in electric bill. Our home is uh, on electric, uh, we don't have gas or, or propane or anything like that. It's all electric. And so our solar panel, the, 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 every kilowatt hour gets sold back to the grid. And actually, we've been building up credit and the solar power, or the electric company has been paying us. So that's nice. And we were able to pay off the mortgage the very same month our first child was born. And I already explained how that allowed us to uh, have one parent stay home. And it's just one less thing to stress about. And so that's how we did it and that's how the math shook out for us. And I want to make it clear. We do not prescribe this as the way for everybody to do, right? That's not what we're trying to say. But uh, there are always room for improvement, right? There's, there's ways that we can look to be more efficient with our means. And if we were not able to pay off the mortgage in such a short amount of time, it was, it's unlikely that we would, have, we would have gone this route. I'll be perfectly frank. We probably would have been paying off the mortgage slightly faster but not quite that fast while still reserving some money for other type of savings uh, along the way. And we would have still had a baby, right? And uh, those things would have still happened. But uh, the, the strategy would have been slightly different. So your story uh, may, may certainly be different. And so what about the interest? We had a 15-year fixed rate mortgage and the total interest if we had just made minimum payments would have been $24,000, $24,300. But because we paid it off in two years, we paid only $3,300 in interest, saving us $21,000 in interest. And this is actually the hidden cost of mortgages that most people just don't usually calculate because we don't feel it. Monthly payments go out and over a 15 or even a 30-year mortgage, you never knew that, you know, the $21,000 or the $200,000, whatever it is, amount of interest that we paid had left our wallets. It's an invisible cost that doesn't feel painful to us, but nevertheless, the math is still the math. And so this, and of course, I'm comparing this with a 15-year mortgage. If it was a 30-year mortgage, the difference would have been even that, more, that much more stark. All right, but then there's the question, isn't a mortgage good for my taxes? All right, let's talk about this a little bit. First of all, your mortgage interest, only the interest can be deducted, deducted from taxes, not your full payment. Sometimes that's uh, easy to be uh, mistaken. And the deduction only applies to the people who itemize their deductions. And most people don't. And if you remember, in 2017, there was a Tax Cut and Jobs Act in which the standard deduction was about doubled. And so even fewer people now itemize their deductions. And so Mortgage, the mortgage interest certainly can help take the edge off. Like I'm not saying don't take the mortgage interest deduction, but to buy a house and to have a mortgage merely to take the deduction is kind of, you know, getting it in reverse because it's like saving, like I plan on saving by paying off uh, uh, or paying a dollar to Uncle Sam to get 25 cents back, right? Uh, You save more by paying off the loan than you get back in the tax deduction, And uh, my good friend Ed Reed, I I think many of you know him, the stewardship director, North American Division for some time. He has a saying. He says, if your accountant tells you to keep your mortgage to save on your taxes, it's time to get a new accountant. And uh, I couldn't agree with him more. And so hopefully that answers that question. And let's talk now specifically in closing about getting the dream house. Okay? So we talked about buying the car, strategy for that. Here's one strategy, not the only, but one way to consider how to get the house. So suppose our dream house is a $500 home out in the country, and we're going to talk about country living and things of that nature later in the week as well. What is the best way to purchase that house? Is it better to buy a small house first, pay it off early, or is it better to go straight for the bigger house if I can afford the payments? So this is a somewhat narrow example, but it's a common question that I have frequently asked. If I can afford the mortgage payment, shouldn't I just go for it? Let's just go for the the, the biggest, and, and just go straight for the one that I can afford, why go through the starter home and have a stair-step method? Okay, we're going to take a look at the math. So we're going to look at the example of the bigs and the smalls, okay, two hypothetical families. They both plan to get into the $500 country home. The bigs decide to go straight to the $500,000 $500, home. And they each have a $50,000 down payment. And so the balance of the mortgage for the bigs is $450,000. And they're taking out a 30-year, 3.5% fixed rate mortgage. So their monthly payments will be a little bit above $2,000 a month. So after the first decade, they would have made $242,484 in monthly payments. Okay? This does not include their down payment. The smalls, on the other hand, they decide to buy a small home first, pay it off early, and then move up to the big house in the country. So they buy a $250,000 home. They also have a $50,000 down payment, but their mortgage is $200,000. They have a 10-year mortgage, 3.5% interest, and their monthly payments are a little under $2,000. They're pretty close, right? But more or less in the same range. And over 10 years, they have paid in monthly payments $237,326. Okay, that's the first decade. Okay, That's where they started. But the smalls notice they got a 10-year mortgage, which means at the end of the first 10 years, they've paid off their house. Second decade, the bigs are continuing on their journey. 30-year mortgage, 3.5% interest rate. They're still paying their $2,021 per month. So another 10 years go by and they have made another $242,484 in monthly payments. But the smalls at the start of the second decade, they now sell their other house and they move up to the $500,000 home. And their down payment now is the value of their other home, $250,000. So the balance of their uh, mortgage now is $250,000. They take out another 10-year mortgage at 3.5%. And now their monthly payments are a little bit higher, $2,400, $2,472. And in those 10 years, they pay a little shy of $300,000 in monthly payments. All right. So let's take a look at the third decade. And I will make this note here. I realize these are, this is a little bit of the back of the envelope math because there is appreciation, right? There is appreciation of all the homes that are being bought and sold. It's difficult to predict what that is, and so uh, the assumption is that as the appreciation goes up on the home you're going to buy, the appreciation also is going up on the home you're selling. So in the third decade, the third decade, the bigs are finally coming to the home stretch. Another 10 years paying the same amount, $2,021, and in total, for their $500,000 home, they would have paid $777,452, but the smalls in the third decade of this hypothetical story, they have no payments. They've already paid off their home. And so the total amount they paid for that home was 582,984,000 dollars for a difference or a savings of $193,468 compared to the bigs. And you notice how they did it. They paid off, they bought the smaller house, and then they moved up to the big house. And they were able to save money and pay it off faster. So, the summary. Both families ended up in their country homes. The smalls' mortgage payments was lower for the first 10 years, slightly higher for the second 10 years, and they had no payments in their third 10 years. The smalls ended up paying off their dream home 10 years before the bigs, And the smalls have also saved nearly $200,000 compared to the bigs in this example. So what was the benefit to the bigs? What did they get out of this? They got to enjoy the bigger home 10 years earlier at a cost of an additional mere $200,000. So the only trade-off for the smalls in this scenario was that they had to live in a smaller house for 10 years before moving up to the big house. And this is a hypothetical scenario, so the years and interest rates and dollar amounts, obviously those are going to change depending on each unique situation, but the principle remains the same. It is better to buy something paid off and then move up than it is to just go straight for the big one and to make endless long, large payments over a long period of time. And so getting the dream house It's good to buy smart and to not let it become a nightmare. I will make this final note before we conclude. I know there are some questions about the hot housing market. We are still going to talk about that. But this presentation is somewhat isolated on just the the nuts and bolts of how to do it, not necessarily taking into account some of the uh, current events and the market dynamics that are going on right now. But we are going to address it in light of some of the end-time prophetic scenario that we're going to look at over the next few days. So I just want to mention that in case you're wondering. And that brings us to the conclusion of our presentation here. And so I'm going to close with prayer, and then we do have about six minutes or so after that for a few questions. So let's bow our heads, and then we can conclude our live stream as well. Father in heaven, we thank you for your presence with us as we discuss some of the more fine details of personal finance, particularly in the realm of debt management. I pray, Lord, that we will be wise stewards and to look at debt in a healthy way, to realize what it is, what it is not, when it is appropriate, when to avoid it. And if we are uh, in debt, that we will be able to manage it in a careful and wise manner. So please guide us the remainder of this day and also the remainder of this camp meeting and help us to be stewards and managers of your means for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 2021, or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.